You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Michael Cow. Michael Cow is the founder and manager of Akenthos Capital Management. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for being on the podcast. So this is actually not going to be one of the like, typical Mike Cow interviews. So usually Mike Cow goes on a podcast and you know, talks about oil and you know, we all fall asleep when he's talking. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but today we're going to be talking about Mike, uh, Mike's story, you know, his, uh, his journey through GS, uh, the J. The, the Aaron Commodities Desk, and then after that, you know, running uh, the money at Canyon, and then, you know, his, his journey of running his own uh, hedge fund. So Juan, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Michael. I'm very excited to do this. Hey, thanks for the opportunity and happy belated 18th to you. Thank you so much. All right. I'm, uh, I just want to say, first of all, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of humble. I, as I was kind of preparing some of the notes for this interview, I was just thinking, gosh, you know, me at 18, I had no, nowhere near the amount of uh, knowledge or focus that you have. So, so uh, kudos Thank you so to much. you for. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, no, let's, uh, let's start the podcast, you know, with that, you know, so how did you get into finance? And, you know, you call it bumbling with a purpose. So, you know, how did you, you know, what was your journey, you know, into uh, finance? Well, uh, really, you talk about a circuitous route. I mean, you know, I grew up um, um, really want falling in love with computers, first and foremost, and I loved computer programming and this is back in the apple II days so i'm kind of i'm dating myself but but um i really loved the creative problem solving aspect of it and and just the satisfaction that came with you know being able to i mean to give you an idea right you know back in the apple II days you know my first computer had 48k of memory right and so this is long before any sort of graphical user interfaces and with such limited memory resources and there are no hard drives at that time um, you know one had to be very very efficient uh, in, in your coding so you know I think like I don't know by ninth grade I, and I, I grew up with the Atari 2600 I loved games and I wanted to, I always wanted to be a video game designer so like the the Apple II afforded the opportunity to kind of like open up the hood if you will and kind of tinker tinker around inside and so you know I don't know I I'd self-taught a whole bunch of programming languages by, uh, by like ninth grade and whatever. And that's, that's when I decided, you know, this is, this is my career. I knew for certain I wanted to be a video game designer. Right. So I go to college, um, and I study electrical engineering, computer science, and, you know, all of a sudden I realized, holy shit, this is, um, you know, to, to, it's a whole different kind of lifestyle to to actually do this for a living. I mean, you know, there you know you had to be okay with um, you know being in the lab like twenty four seven all the time. And this the fact that you know 
in a way, the fun aspect of it. Um, when I when I did it as a hobby, I loved it. Then when it became sort of force fed down my throat that way, um, I kind of got turned off to it. And it was also a little bit compounded by the fact that when I did some engineering internships, um, it was uh, a very sort of uh, isolated cubicle type of lifestyle in corporate America. And, and so like by junior year in college, I knew, you know what, I, this really isn't my personality. I, I still am kind of a people person, despite my you know, love of computers, right? Um, and around the same time, you know, I, I learned that, oh my gosh, you know, the, the top paying offers for programming jobs at the time were Microsoft paying, I don't know, like just back then 45 grand a year or something. And, and, you know, the engineering internships, you know, were, were less than that, obviously. And, and then I found out, oh my gosh, you know, in, in finance, you could literally make multiples of that, um, um, you know, and, but I, I really had no idea what finance uh, was. I just had this very amorphous idea that, oh, you know what, Wall Street is this place somewhere far off in New York City, and it sounded all exciting. So then almost on a lark, I, um, I interviewed, uh, I did a complete last minute pivot in my senior year in college. Um, and I started interviewing with uh, investment banks. I, I, again, being how clueless I was back then, right? I didn't know that there were even these like two year analyst programs available, right? So I was interviewing with IT programs. Um, so Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they recruited and though, you know, for my department, I majored in electrical engineering and computer science. The job postings I saw were the IT posts. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this was, a, this was an opportunity to interview with some Wall Street banks uh, in an IT role. So then I took, I took that, that role, moved to New York City, and, um, and um, no sooner had I gotten there uh, than I realized that, you know what, if I, I, you get thrust at, at, I entered into the Goldman Sachs IT uh, training program and, and um, you know, you're there with I don't know, like 60 kids from all over the country and they, they, give you, they put you through like three months of sort of the rudiments of Wall Street type training. And then I realized already within like the, that first summer in New York, I'm like, you know, if, if I wanted to be a programmer, I probably should have stayed, I should have gone to Microsoft or, or some tech company, right? But if I'm here, I'd really rather be um, in, a, in a revenue generating unit and whatnot. And, and um, so, so that was always sort of like my, my the purpose and my background, although I didn't know how to go about it. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I wound up getting sort of, you know, drafted into the J. Aaron group, which is the, uh, the currencies and commodities group of Goldman Sachs. Um, and I wound up uh, developing the, the currency options um, uh, interfaces there. But at that time, I had already you know, done a lot of studying up on options and whatnot, and, you know, just out of just sheer interest and in learning about it. Um, do I actually want to hear the story about how I, how I wound up transitioning to, to uh, a, a trading role? Yep, let's hear it. The, um, so <laughs> this is, again, this is totally serendipitous because, so a year into the job, right, 
um, I'm sitting, um, uh, I get called, I, okay, so I just completed my currency options module and it was being sort of beta tested by one of the senior salespeople in FX. This is circa 1993, right? Pre, uh, pre-euro days, right? So, you know, the world of currency trading was, you know, pretty wild. I think George Soros had just made it, made his big, you know, billion dollar bet against the Bank of England, et cetera, right? So um, I, call, I get called out on the desk to debug my program. Um, and all of a sudden, who calls up? Um, it was the quantum fund. And they're asking for a uh, two-sided market in a, on a massive notional size trade, um, option trade, in dollar mark, dollar Deutschmark. And I, rem- I remember the whole desk going quiet and everybody's trying to figure out, okay, is it a buyer, is it a seller? How do we, how do we shade, the, you know, how do we quote, how do we quote them, right? And I was just trying to understand what the option trade was. So I asked the sales guy, I said, um, can you sketch it out for me? What is it, what is it that he's trying to accomplish? So he sketches it out on a napkin, but he kind of messes it up. And, you know, I, I just, you know, gently corrected. And I said, oh, I think it's supposed to be like this. So then, you know, that was that. And then two days later, I'm at my cubicle in, uh, in the IT group. I get a call and it's basically my boss's boss's boss. It's literally, it's uh, so I, in those days, Lloyd Blankfein, right? Everybody knows Lloyd. Lloyd ran uh, J. Aaron Trading. And then his counterpart, um, Richard Witten, ran sales. So I get a call from Richard. Richard's like, oh, I hear you have, have a knack for, for um, options. Would you be interested in interviewing for a job on the, as, a, as a precious metals analyst or whatever? So I'm like, you know, done. So that's literally how I, how I transitioned from IT to the uh, precious and base metals desk initially as an analyst. And then there was another um, uh, sort of right time, right place type moment where, I mean, this, this, this shows you, like, I, I was very, very fortunate because that J. Aaron environment, Goldman Sachs, was extremely entrepreneurial and meritocratic. I mean, right? Because, you know, had that salesperson that that I was talking to, had he been, I don't know, um, you know, insecure about his position at, at being corrected by like a young kid, he could have, right? He, he, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to tell, you know, Richard that you know, this young kid has an interest and maybe an aptitude for options. But uh, so I'm eternally grateful for, for, um, for uh, uh, that opportunity. Um, and then another thing happened, which was, um, you know, being on the desk as an, as a, as an analyst, you're sort of uh, pulled in all sorts of directions. Um, you know, the desk that I was on was precious and base metals, um, but the partner in charge, uh, his name is Jimmy. Um, a lot, a lot. Of, by the way, a lot of I've met a lot of um, Twitter friends who have also gone through um, that department, and they all know and love Jimmy. Jimmy is one of the most uh, incredible instinctual traders I've ever met. But he was the big boss of that whole department. Jim Riley. Jim Riley, that's right. And he was the big boss of that department who, uh, who also ran a nascent product called the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. And it, I think the index had just started in 1991 or 92. And there were only two traders on that desk. And 
So even though it wasn't part of my daily, you know, bailiwick, um, um, you know, the, the head trader there, John, um, you know, would ask me to do, you know, pet projects. And I, you know, I never said no, you know, I, I did the projects. And so what happened was within, you know, three months of me being on the J. Aaron desk, one of his, his co-trader left to be a salesperson. And so I basically got dropped into that slot as a junior trader at the age of you know, 23. And, you know, that was, that was super, super exciting moment because, you know, in, uh, in those days, I don't know how I don't know how Wall Street trading desks have evolved, but you know back then, you know every trader had a had a PNL line, right? And so you have your initials on the PNL line, and so there's nowhere to hide. Every day, there's at the end of day report, there's like a there's a sheet that goes around to all the trading desks and it shows kind of your your initials and your PNL, positive or negative, and um, and um, to get that to get that line all of a sudden was super, super exciting, especially when you're like just a kid, right? <laughs> so that's literally how I got dropped into finance. So very circuitous and, you know. <laughs> Do you have any cool stories about Jim Riley or Lloyd Blankfein? Oh, so many. I mean, you know, like, okay, so, so I, okay, so Jimmy, right? Jimmy, I said, is one of the best uh, instinctual traders uh, that I know. And he had, a, he had an ability to convey such emotion and such force through, through a landline, right? That I, you know, he could literally, okay, so, so one of the things that um, every uh, trainee uh, and Jay Aaron on that desk actually had to do was, you know, we usually had to clerk, you know, a couple of months down in the, in the gold pit, for instance. Right. And that's a, you know, that's a, I, I, so I did that for a little bit. And what you learn in that, in that role is number one, how physically exhausting it is, but how also, you know, with, with Jimmy being the upstairs, the head of upstairs trading, right he could literally convey emotion through the phone line down to the clerk who would then convey it down to the floor trader who would then execute in the pit. And I've just seen Jimmy like just get on that phone, take command of the phone and, and just, you could, you could literally see the energy course from, his voice all the way down into the pit. It's unbelievable um, to, to, to watch. But um, he, uh, Jimmy was incredible because the, you know, so Wall, Wall Street often gets a, gets a bad rap, I guess. And one of the things that I wanna try to at least set the record straight is I, I, think, I think Wall Street, to me, one of the, the, the things that I appreciate most about a, a, a you know that that experience that I had in Wall Street is how how purely um, meritocratic it was. So so you know you can it was trial by fire on that desk. And the story, the anecdote I'll give you for, for Jimmy is that okay, so I had just become the junior GSCI trader, and. Um, on that desk, because we didn't have a real franchise yet, right? So a lot of desks, right? If you're the precious metals trade, 
trader, if you're the oil trader, um, there's a lot of franchise value in that seat, right? Because you're a market maker, um, you know, you, you, you quote all sorts of, you know, derivatives around the product, et cetera. There's, there's a lot of business uh, of just market making. Um, GSCI was a brand new product um, that we really didn't have any sort of flow business. So the way um, we had to sort of justify our paychecks, right, if you will, was, you know, try to come up with trading, proprietary trading ideas on the, on the, um, uh, the 22 underlying commodities. And I remember one of the first things that I did was, you know, I did, I, I recommended this trade in live hog futures, right? I did all this analysis on like the fundamentals, the technicals, and I did a little write-up and I presented it to the desk and Jimmy liked it. And, and uh, he took a position, right? Um, I can't remember the size, but just to give you, give you an idea, I was so junior that my, my typical lot sizes that I traded were maybe like 10 or 20 lots, right? And, and like a big P&L for me would be plus or minus 100 grand a day, right? And, and so Jimmy took a liking to the trade and he took a pretty big position, um, you know, let's call it like a hundred lots, you know, big for me, but tiny for him, right? So the, the trade winds up working out fabulously and, you know, break, it breaks out way to the upside, right? But I think you could sense that it got overextended, right? It was basically like, I think it closed limit up or something. And I was like all proud, you know, hey, you know, I, I helped, you know, Jimmy make a bunch of money, blah, 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 right? So the market closes and, um, you know, Jimmy sees me alone on the desk from his corner office, in the, you, know, you know, far off in the distance. So he calls me up at the desk. He's like, Michael Cow, uh, make me a market right now on a hundred lots of hogs. I'm like, Jimmy, the, uh, the market's closed. He goes, are you a market maker or are you not a market maker? You know, he's like, make me, make me a market right now. So I'm like, okay, well, I bid the close, offered up, whatever, right? He's like, 100 lots, yours. <laughs> so all of a sudden, he stuffs me with the 100 lots that he buys, right, at much lower prices. He senses that the market is totally overextended on, it was just a technical breakout. The next day, you know, market, the, the, the hogs were, I think they might've even been limit down. They completely reversed course. And all of a sudden I'm sitting on like, a, I don't know, 200 or 300 grand loss when like, you know, tip, my typical PL swings were like 50 grand. I'm like, oh. So it's like a PL transfer from like Jimmy's line to my line. And from that moment on, I always, always, uh, had a much better read. I mean, he, he subsequently um, tested me many more times and I could tell that I was on the right track when he didn't deal on my quote. He's like, Michael Cal, you're learning. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, I know it's, and it's crazy that he's like, just trading off a of field, you know, the amount of experience needed for that is just insane. So. Oh, incredible! I've, I've, I, you know, I've never met a, a a trader with that kind of a just just a natural instinct, instinct yeah. gut instinct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. what was Blankfin like? We need a Blankfin. Oh, Lloyd, too. Lloyd is just funny. I mean, I, I just have a funny uh, anecdote about Lloyd. I mean, you know, Lloyd 
you know, back then he, he would patrol the desk, you know, he was kind of head of, head of the whole desk. And he, so he'd walk around and, you know, our, our trading desk was uh, the trading floor of Jay Aaron was like, you know, football field size floor. So I was situated in, you know, GSCI, which was right around precious and base metals, you know, to our right was all the, you know, the currents, the currency people to the left was, I think like grains and then crude oil and, you know, what have you. Right. So everything to do with commodities and Lloyd would just kind of like patrol the different desks and check in and, you know, every once in a while there'd be like hot spots and he'd be, you know, he'd be walking around all the time. Right. So uh, again, <laughs> you know, I'm 22 or 23, you know, I'm trying, I'm, I'm putting on my like, you know, best duds trying to dress to impress. Right. Okay. And um, so I think I, I, I just remember like one day um, I forgot my collar stays. Right. So I'm wearing my nice suit, my, my, my shirt, but I forgot my collar stays and my collars are like, just kind of like, kind of like pointed up. So this is, this is like key fashion um, um, advice for you, all right? So my, my collars are like this. And so Lloyd comes by and I'm like, hey, hi, hi Lloyd, how are you? You know, I'm just, just trying to be friendly and, you know, kiss up to the big, big boss, right? <laughs> He's like, he looks at me, he goes, <laughs> he looks at my, my upturned collars like, who do you think you are, the flying nun? <laughs> So, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 I loved the collegial atmosphere of that trading desk. It's actually some of my fondest memories of uh, Wall Street. I'll, I'll tell you another really funny story. It doesn't have to do with Lloyd, but so, like I said, this is like a wide open area, like a football field size, right? Uh-huh. So, so um, and I explained to you like the layout. And so, you know, after trading hours, a lot of times people would just fuck around and there were, there were, you know, there was, uh, I think, you know, our silver trader, there are a couple of really tall guys on my desk. There was a silver trader who was like six foot eight. There was a copper trader who was like six foot six. So they'd be like standing maybe like, a, you know, 50 or 75 feet away from each other. And be, they'd be tossing a tennis ball back and forth back and forth right just way across multiple desks right and and like like a speeding tennis ball shot right back and forth so then they're doing this right just like checking the ball back and forth and back and forth there are two unsuspecting senior partners one of them being the head of oil right one of the balls literally whizzes by his nose like buzzes his nose and th these two partners are deep in conversation about something. And the oil partner is like, like, who the fuck did that, right? He's like looking around. And then there's the guy who threw it. He's six foot eight, right? He's like, oh, trying to like seem like, seem like, you know, inconspicuous or whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just, it was awesome. <laughs> uh, it was just a lot of fun. They didn't get into any trouble though? Like, did they not get into any trouble? No, I think I think he kind of feigned. Uh, he played possum, even though he was six foot eight and stuck out like a sore thumb. But <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is crazy. Wow. Yeah. And so, and so, how did you make the shift from commodities to convertible or uh, con uh, convertible and uh, you know, relative value type of uh, 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's so that's also kind of uh, um, uh, another serendipity. Um, so I so I stayed at JRN for three years, um, and I decided, you know what? Even though I had been a pro, uh, you know promoted to like an associate level position, I'm like, um, I never really had like a formal finance background, and I and I wanted to to learn you know and so i applied to business school got in went to business school and in the first um year of business school um i did an internship um at harvard management right this is the management company for the harvard endowment right and it was run by um uh jack meyer um and he had two chief lieutenants um i think it was uh john jacobson who later uh, went on to form Highfields Capital and uh, Jeff Larson. So, uh, so it was interesting because the 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 guy that helped me get that internship was an ex Aaron guy, Stu Porter, who also went on to you know form a big asset management firm called Denim. I think. At any at any rate, um, initially, uh, so what was really interesting and eye opening to me about that experience was that their their the way they were managing money, endowment money, was a, a relative value approach. So within equities, they were doing equity long short type stuff. Um, within convertibles, they were doing convertible arbitrage, they were doing merger arb, et cetera. And, and so I worked on a number of different projects that spanned do, um, doing things like, you know, you know, commodity, you know, index arb, to risk ARB, to convert ARB, sort of got a taste of all these different strategies. I'm like, wow, you know, the, 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 the world, uh, there's a lot more to the world of finance than, than, than macro, you know, trading and commodities. You know, when I left Jay Aaron, um, I already knew that I kind of wanted to gravitate to the buy side. Um, and, but to me, buy side, meaning, you know, like the hedge funds, were primarily large macro funds, you know, CTAs, those types of shops. I had no idea that there were so many other um, other uh, types of firms. And so, so after that experience at, at Harvard, I started applying to various uh, uh, various shops. I actually had some offers. I had an offer from Citadel and um, another uh, shop called HBK back then, but. I, I wound up uh, going to uh, Canyon in LA. Um, Canyon was uh, born out of the, the roots of uh, Drexel. Uh, the partners there, uh, Josh Friedman and Mitch Jules, super, super smart guys from Drexel, uh, very steeped in credit wisdom. And so if you know a little bit about LA, after the demise of Drexel, there was a big diaspora out of Drexel. So a lot of the hedge funds and asset managers within the LA area, right, have a have a have a deep credit focus, and Canyon was one of them. Um, when I got hired by Canyon, this was uh, 1997. Uh, they were a relatively small firm, like sub 500 million, um, although they they grew very very quickly. And when I got there, I, again. Um, I was a, a little bit of a fish out of water because at that point, my background was primarily macro trading options. I knew nothing about credit 
capital structure. Um, and, and, you know, they, they hired me, I was the first, uh, basically MBA hire they made. I don't really think they knew what to do with me either. <laughs> so, but, but again, I, I give, uh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to them as mentors and, and, uh, being so entrepreneurial and, um, allowing me to just kind of, uh, you know, uh, develop my own business, if you will. So what, 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 I, what I wound up doing was I started focusing on the convertible asset class because I viewed it as, well, number one, this is a part of the capital structure that's typically junior to the senior unsecured bonds that the rest of the firm focused on, right? Um, not well covered. Um, the asset class was systemically cheap at that point. Um, and also what I, what I really liked about the asset class is that it involved credit analysis, equity analysis, option analysis, interest rate analysis, right? So like it, it's, a, it's a complex security yeah. and, and there, were, there was no one focusing on it. So I essentially, uh, you know, taught, taught it to myself in a way. And um, I formulated this thesis back around 1998 that you know the the convert arb and capital structure arb strategies tend to be um sort of long gamma long convexity types of uh you know risk rewards and merger arb so i also got involved in a, a bunch of uh, merger arbs back in 1998 after uh, LTCM blew up, um, you know, spreads were super, super juicy, but, you know, the, the typical safe uh, risk arb has a very negative gamma type of profile, right? You've got like a high likelihood of making a dollar on, a, on, on the spread on deal closure. And then you've got, you know, maybe a 5% chance of losing your ass if the deal yeah. falls. Right. So that if you think about that, that's a very short gamma type of uh, type of risk profile. So my, my big sort of observation and pitch to the partners was, well, what if I was able to create a business that kind of combine combine the two so that systemically, at least. Right. The idea was that systemically uh, they're, they're sort of self hedging types of strategies and and um, in the best case scenario, with proper security selection, you can produce like a pretty, pretty um, interesting business. So, anyways, so I I I, I wrote a little pitch paper uh, internally called Alpha with Asymmetry, and that was the idea behind it. And uh, they let me have the ball and run with it. Um, I wound up uh, building out a business um, at Canyon for a couple of years, um, did well. Um, and then um, in 2002, when I wanted to spread my wings a little bit and, you know, try it out on my own, and I started um, Acanthos, Acanthos, however you want to pronounce it, um, that was, it, I essentially pursued a similar uh, type of, you know, hybrid approach. I guess the way I, I, I differentiated myself from your typical convert ARB guys was that because I, I now had five years of experience in analyzing fundamental credit and capital structure at Canyon, um, there, you know, a lot of the convert ARB universe uh, tended to be more, um, more like vol ARB oriented, right? So, yeah. um, 
uh, didn't do as much uh, credit work. And in and once the CDS credit default swap market sort of uh, uh, matured and came about, um, a lot of the the vanilla convert ARB guys typically just hedged out their credit, right? But um, my view was always, I actually want to be long credit risk that I wanted to be long because there's so much more big in the trade when you can, when you can um, get the credit right. And um, the, uh, the other thing, the other thing that um, I, I, I really worked on in terms of trying to differentiate myself was, remember how I told you, like I, I, I viewed uh, the, the thing I love about computer programming is the creative problem solving aspect of it. You know? and, and so I, to me, putting together really interesting trades using disparate parts of the capital structure it, to me, it's almost like solving a complex uh, computer science problem. There's there's a lot of um, and and so so those those types of trades are are basically things that I love to do um, at Acanthos. And you know there there was a time and place for them. Um, post financial crisis, it was a lot harder to do those types of trades only because um, you know a lot of them uh, required. Uh, good margin ability, which no longer had uh, post, you know, GFC. So yeah, if you're interested, I, I can tell you some of the interesting trades, you know. Yeah. So before we get into the trades, yeah. That we had, I so, you know, when you started a fund, so, you know, what was it like? So what, how was the shift from, you know, working at say Canyon to Akintas, you know, but in a way, so what were the challenges that you faced when you initially started a fund? I mean, you know, I, again, um, I think, I think, um, I think I never want to discount as I get older, right? I, I appreciate the role of luck more and more, right? And being, being um, in the right asset class, right? And so in 2002, when I uh, branched off, I, I was lucky in that a, the asset class itself was still very cheap. The asset class meaning converts. Even though I, even though I um, branded myself as you know more than a convert arb, right? A lot of my initial investors were looking at me for um, convertible expertise, right? So so so, um, but but so but it was a but I launched into a benign environment. Is what I was saying, right? Um, and you know, back then it was also easier to launch with like a with like a bigger number than than today. So, um, what actually happened um, there was that you know I had been approached by like a like a, a friendly competitor essentially, who was more of a um, a you know vol arb type of type of uh, convert arb, and he appreciated me for my credit skills. And he asked me if I would be interested in, um, you know, starting my own firm. And I thought, you know what, are you offering? <laughs> and so, and so basically, you know, over you know, essentially cocktails in Vegas this is literally how the deal went down. He, he wound up becoming my seed investor and I wound up, he and a passive investor um, uh, seeded me with like a hundred million. And uh, so I launched um, with a hundred and um, was uh, 
yeah, so was was very lucky. I think I think I mean I, I'm not as close to it now, but I, I I think it's a lot harder to launch with a bigger number these days, right? Especially with all the compliance headaches and whatnot. So so. I mean, your expenses were lower, and you know you also got to have a. Well, yeah. So I, 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 was, I, was, yeah. I, I was very lucky because like, you know, I, yeah. I immediately had um, enough of a fee base to afford um, infrastructure right away. You know, and I had, you know, I had a, I had a CFO, I had, you know, two analysts. So, you know, I had a whole team like at the get go. Whereas, you know, if you're starting with, you know, 10 million, let's say, you know, on a shoestring, it's a lot harder to do that. And then it becomes a chicken and the egg problem, right? Because in order to get um, institutional um, uh, interest in your fund, right? You need to have these pieces in place, but how do you have these pieces in place before you have the fee base? And, you know, you know um, unless you already come from, you know, if, unless you already have like a pretty big bankroll, right? Uh, which, and fund that out of, out of your pocketbook. So, yeah. And, 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 you know, this is also, you know, way pre Dodd-Frank days, right? So, you know, I mean, that's, that's the other thing, right? And frankly, one of the, one of several reasons why I eventually uh, decided to, uh, to return, you know, the outside money and kind of, quote, retire, if you will, was, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the day-to-day management um revolved around a lot of compliance type stuff, which, you know, that part's not so fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's get into some of those interesting trade structures. So, you know, how, so would you give some examples of, you know, those interesting trade constructions, you know, when it, uh, when it came to implementing ideas? Um, okay, so, you know, I'll give you an, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, okay, so, all right, I, I, ha- I have a good one. Um, so I'm going to take you way back. I actually made a presentation about this years ago at the Value Investing Congress. Um, so the, the, the world of converts sometimes can have some very esoteric securities. Okay. So um, in 1999, I think, um, Sprint, right? was the long distance company Sprint um, was two separate companies. There was a FON division, which was like the boring landline division. And then there was the PCS division, which was like the fast growing wireless on, right? And this is when, you know, cell phone adoption was just beginning to take off. So during, the, during that NASDAQ bubble, right? Um, the PCS portion of, of Sprint just took off like like a rocket, and I you know I'm just going to throw out random numbers because I can't remember, but I'm going to say that you know maybe maybe the original originally the stock was like two or three bucks, and then it shot up to something like a hundred or something, right? Create something crazy like that, right? Well, the PCS um, uh, business was financed uh, by. A, a bunch of cable companies. So there was you know, Cox, Comcast, you know, um, a bunch of cable companies owned this PCS stock and they were sitting on a gold mine and they wanted to uh, monetize it in a tax efficient fashion. So when the stock popped, 
they all issued these convertible exchangeable notes, right? So Cox issued something called the prizes, and I can't remember what the acronym stood for. Uh, uh, Comcast issued something called the zones securities. And what they were was they were very, very long duration securities, like 30 year duration securities. They were, ex they were un the underlying credit was Comcast, but it was exchangeable into Comcast's PCS stock, right? Which was at a very, very high price, right? So if you think about it, right, it's genius because they get to uh, clip, they get, they get to deduct the interest expense, right? They get to essentially monetize and hedge out their PCS stock at a high price, but but um, not have to pay taxes on it, right? All right. Fast forward to I don't know 2002, let's say post internet bubble, everything's crashed. PCS stock is all the way back down to two bucks, right? So I told you these are long duration converts, right? So so and and oh by the way, and they're very low coupons. So, so now that they're completely busted, meaning you know, in convertible parlance, when a, when, a, when a convertible is busted, it's way out of the money, right? Mm -hmm. So the conversion price is something way up in the stratosphere. This is way out of the money. And now um, the only thing holding up the security is this paltry coupon, but it's, got a, it's still got 28 years of life on it. So these these securities are now trading at essentially 40 cents on a dollar, right? They think of it as like a long dated zero, right? No, right. So they're trading at like 40 cents on the dollar, but so this is when I first started learning about these securities and came upon the this really interesting capital structure disparity. The the if you take Comcast's capital structure, right? They had a whole bunch of senior unsecured debt, right? That was senior to this. And then just, th and th this Comcast zones layer was literally the only uh, unsecured debt underneath it. But if you think about it, right? The capital structure is like a balance. It, it, it's like an investment grade capital structure. So senior and senior and um, junior were basically peripacy. They were the same credit risk essentially, right? But the senior bonds are trading at call it like 110, 120, right? Cents on the dollar. But this junior debt, which is essentially the same credit risk, is trading at 40. So the interesting setup was obviously, right? You could literally buy this thing at 40. You could short some of the seniors against it to hedge out the credit risk, hedge out the interest rate risk, right? And you just basically had a, a structure where if the company, uh, let's say went bankrupt or whatever, you would make a killing, right? But then something really interesting happened, something unanticipated. The Cox, remember Cox had a sister security called the prizes. Cox recognized this capital structure disparity and started buying back their prizes in the open market. They bought back so much of the prizes that eventually they only had like a stub remaining maybe like 10% of the issue remaining, right? And by the way, I owned these prizes and I was one of the guys trying to like, you know, buy them really cheaply and then sell them a little bit higher, you know, a little bit higher, meaning maybe even 20% higher to the, to, to the uh, cop, to Cox directly, right? right? So I did a lot of these types of sort of activist types of trades where I'd buy something and then I'd call the management man, 
call the management and and say and pitch them and say, hey, look, I know you want these bonds. Here, I'll sell them to you at you know X price, or or sometimes I might exchange them uh, for equity to help help them delever. Right? I did a bunch of these sort of activist types of I call them flush outs. Right? Um, so, anyways. I did a bunch of these things and I'm all happy because, um, you know, I'm selling these things up 20%, you know, I'm making a nice return for my investors. So, so then I'm completely out of the prizes and then Cox is stuck with this tiny little stub remaining. All of a sudden they wind up calling the issue. They, they just want to clean up. Right. So these things that I, that I bought at, say 40 and maybe sold at 50 went all the way to par so all the widows and orphans that were quote asleep at the switch that didn't even know about all this stuff they were the biggest winners of all and i'm the chump right i'm the chump for only selling them at 50 so 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 basically like after that i started buying i got really really aggressive in buying these comcast zones and i just held on to them for for years and uh, hoping for the same thing to happen. It never did, uh, as far as I know, at least while I held them. But to me, it was a, uh, it, it was like a, an embedded, it was, it was a really, really interesting position that had literally, there was no way to lose on it. You could have some mark to market uh, weird stuff happen, but it was an embedded, a deeply embedded event option. And so, you know, yeah. the, yeah, so so I loved structures, trades like that, where I could build, I could piece together disparate parts of the capital structure, um, and create some kind of event optionality yeah. around it. <laughs> yeah. So and so the other trade was like the El Paso uh, event option that you know you want. Um, so, so could you describe how that, you know, how, how, you know, how you constructed that trade, you know, how that idea came about? Yeah, I thought, you know, I, I, so, so last year I did a, I, uh, I, I did a podcast with RCM Alternatives and I talked about this a little bit. I called it, I called it the, um, uh, the best trade that, uh, the best setup that never made any money, but it was great. It, it, it sure looked good on paper. Um, but, um, but you know, it could have made a lot of money. Okay, so so here here's the story with that one. So um, El Paso was a pipeline company, highly levered pipeline company uh, back then. And um, one of my analysts, uh, and they had a convertible uh, outstanding that was, um, I think, I, I think puttable within a year, trading. I don't know, trading in low nineties, right? So you just hit the pitch. The, my analyst was basically saying, hey, look, you know, you could buy these things at, you know, 91 or whatever and, you know, uh, earn like a 10% yield to put in, in one year. Just hold it, right? If you think about that, though, that type of trade is a little bit more like a, it's, it's a little bit like a risk arc, right? Like you have a very, very high likelihood of, of making your eight or nine points and making that 10% yield to put, but if whatever happens, if something bad happens with the company and there's a default, uh, you could you could wind up getting killed, right? So I initially, I initially, but he, you know, he made all the, the the whole case for why these this paper's money good and how how I'm going to make my yield. So I took a position in it, but then as I started looking at the capital structure, I noticed okay, well, there's a senior secured revolver 
that was yielding maybe like 8%. And it's literally like two rungs higher in seniority of the capital stack. And I'm like, okay, would I rather, would I, do I wanna be the sub piece of paper earning 10% or being super senior and earning 8%? It seems like it's a, it's, it's, it's a no brainer to migrate up the capital structure and sacrifice 200 basis points, right? But then the other thing that was interesting is again, the commonality between this and the zones trade is that capital maturity mismatches in the capital structure can create really interesting opportunities. So the, in this capital structure, there was also a very long duration piece of paper, like a 25 year piece of paper, senior piece of paper that was trading at 78, okay? Because it was so long. And this piece, this convert, which was junior, was trading at 90, right? Because of, because of the imminent put. So now all of a sudden I had a whole a completely different trade construction in mind. I said, what if I went, I went long that senior piece of paper at 78 and shorted the piece of paper that was 90, that was trading at 90. I'm sorry, these two are, are peripassuit. They were peripassuit. There was no senior sub risk. So the, the, these two pieces were peripassuit. Um, so then if you think about that, right? Oh, and then, and then, because the convert was a, was a, was a zero and accreting towards par, um, my, the long bond was a coupon bearing bond, right? At a much lower dollar price, right? So I could, I could buy, I could set it up in such a way that I would be net carry positive. And then I, I separately also owned a piece of the senior secured that was bulletproof no, no matter what, right? So, so here's the thinking behind this, this setup. If El Paso goes bankrupt, right? My senior secured piece, that 8% current yield is bulletproof, even in a bankruptcy, even in a liquidation, right? But that the, the maturity mismatch um, between the seniors, the, this coupon bearing note and the convert would all of a sudden collapse to zero. So the spread between 78 cents on the dollar and 90 would collapse to zero, right? In a bankruptcy. So I, I'm, I'm golden, right? But this is the most interesting part of the trade. If there, there were rumors at that time that Chevron uh, Texaco was looking to buy this company potentially, right? And so if Chevron Texaco bought this company, if it was for cash, well, there would be a change of control. Right, change of control. My the, the ninety gets put at par. There's usually a change of control at par, but my seventy-eight also gets uh, goes to par. Okay. The real upside is if Chevron Texaco buys them for stock, because if Chevron Texaco bought El Paso for stock, they they basically just assume the debt right of El Paso. So all of a sudden. The, the converts that I'm short at 90, they're puttable and callable at par. I can't lose more than 10 points on it. But my long bonds all of a sudden become Chevron Texaco credit, goes from a junk credit all, all, all the way to like high investment grade, right? So the set, my set, I could literally make 50 or 60 points on the long bond. So I called this, I remember like I, when I, when I talked to investors way back, this is like 15 or 15 years ago. I called this a 
synthetic event option. <laughs> you know, by piecing together yeah. these three disparate parts of the capital structure. But do you see, uh, like, to me, right? This, this is, is super to me, interesting. This is, yeah. this is like solving a computer science problem. I can see why. I can see why that is. Like, you know, it is. You know, usually when people talk about you know change they made, you know, it's usually like long euro or long this, long that. You know, they're, they're, they're a lot simpler, but this is like just so complex. And in a way, you know, that was an edge in and of itself, right? Because most people wouldn't think of it like that. Well, it's a trade. I mean, it's a trade. The reason why it didn't make money is simply because like Chevron Texaco never made that bid, right? But to me, like as long as I had the margin ability to be able to keep on a trade like this, and it's effectively my entire portfolio was different constructions like this. And so my view is that like, if you can set yourself up in a way where you've got all these sorts of uh, disparate event options, you don't, you don't necessarily know when they'll hit, if they'll ever hit, right? But if you can set yourself up in a way where you're not, you're, you're, you could be actually paid to wait in this case, right? So I'm not paying out theta uh, uh, for this optionality. I'm actually getting paid while I wait then why not have a portfolio of this? And if I'm getting good margin terms, right? I could have a, I could have a, a really, really interesting um, portfolio. So those were things that, um, that I love to do. Um, you know, global financial crisis did change things because afterwards, um, a lot of these types of setups were no longer uh, tenable because, you know, I think the, the prime brokers um, required way too much balance sheet. And so, you know, um, yeah, so may, maybe the, the, maybe, maybe these types of setups will become viable again someday, but. Vertical arbitrage great again. So yeah. And so how did you get back into macro? Um, well, I mean, in a, in a way, so yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting because my career was, I started in macro and then really went deep. Most of my career was really focused on micro issues, right? Capital structure stuff. And then um, it wasn't until around 2014, 2015, where um, one of the uh, equity positions that I was involved in, um, the, the underlying thesis was an event-driven thesis, had nothing to do with commodities, but it was, a, it was an oil and gas producer. The bottom fell out of the oil market, as, there, as you know, in 2014, which is essentially the, the beginning of this long bear market that we're now just coming out of. And uh, it basically forced me to, it, I mean, it was like a big jolt to me, like, holy shit, you know, you could get the, you could get the micro right about something and get completely swamped by the macro. So I literally had to uh, redon my uh, commodity trading hat and rekindle a lot of my old uh, commodity trading relationships and get really, really deep into the weeds on, you know, understanding the macro fundamentals of oil specifically, right? And so, and so, um, and oil is the primary commodity that I've focused on over the last like six or seven years, because one of the very, very last um, uh, deals I did before kind of, you know, uh, hanging up my spurs, if you will, was, you um, was uh, I participated in a uh, restructuring uh, of, a, of an upstream MLP that went bankrupt back in 2016. And um, we, along with a group of other hedge funds, provided uh, essentially the recap capital 
to to we, we essentially bought out um, uh, acreage in the Permian Basin from this uh, from this defunct bankrupt company and uh, recapitalized it, um, hired a, a new you know, rock star management team uh, to develop this asset. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, in my various oil interviews, I've said in the past that, you know, I don't, I don't talk about anything, um, uh, any single stocks, primarily because I don't follow any uh, public stuff anymore. I have a significant chunk of my net worth invested in this post reorg equity, right? I, we originally got involved through senior, senior unsecured debt, uh, eventually uh, became post reorg equity and it's a private company. Um, and, um, you know, the objective is to, is to harvest this asset. And, and, uh, I talk a lot in some of my Twitter threads about, you know, one of the things that, that I worry about a lot, um, that I've worried about a lot historically in the oil patch is capital reallocation risk. Um, right. Um, you know, when you've got, when you've got CEOs looking to maximize their equity option, in an evergreen vehicle like a public stock, right? Um, you necessarily have to uh, keep funneling cash flow that you that comes out of the ground back into almost definitionally worse acreage, worse and worse acreage, right? Tier one, tier two, tier three becomes tier two, and tier two becomes tier one eventually, right? Um, and so, so that's always been sort of the struggle, the difficulty of, uh, of uh, the, the public markets. And one of the, one of the uh, nice things about um, being in a uh, private vehicle is that you don't have that, um, that evergreen vehicle. I mean, it is, a, it is a, you know, it's a full harvest, right? And, and you don't have that capital reallocation risk. There are other risks for sure, but but um, you don't have the capital reallocation risk at least, so. And do you have any recommendations or resources when it comes to you know, just learning about oil and commodities? Yeah, I mean, look, there's the Twitter sphere is filled with so much talent um, on this space. Um, you know, I, I, I always um, uh, say that one of, my, one of my favorite macro analysts is uh, the Capital One. Um, analyst, you know, I think, I think the, the problem with um, uh, the the Twitter sphere sometimes is that you know there, a, a lot of stuff. There, there are there are a lot and there are a lot of um, sources of expertise, but a lot of them are recycling uh, the same narrative, right? And so at the end of the day, it's a little bit hard sometimes to figure out the um, the where the source material is coming from. So you could, you could literally have like a hundred accounts uh, broadcasting the same narrative that came from maybe, maybe like one or two people. And so it, it, there, there is this sort of echo chamber risk a little bit. Um, the, the, the reason why I like uh, the Capital One analyst is that um, you know, her name is Lakshmi um, Tri Kumar. She's, she's always been very balanced. Um, she doesn't get caught up being like a perma doesn't get caught up being like a perma bear, and um, you know so you know the, one of the one of the big debates right now in the in the patch is 
you know, how much OPEC plus spare capacity there is. And I, I would say that she's a little, she's notoriously conservative on, on this front, but I prefer her caution over um, a lot of the pie in the sky um, forecasts that, oh, you know what, we're out of spare capacity, blah, 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 blah. I just, this is a, this is a tough sector. It's not for the faint of heart. And um, obviously, you know, I, I, I do agree with the structural, long-term structural thesis, but um, I also uh, think that maybe um, uh, oil may have gotten ahead of itself, at least for 2022. I, I certainly, I'm not, I'm not foreseeing $120 oil for 2022. I could be completely wrong. Um, but like I said, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong from that perspective, you know, but, but, um, but I do think I, I do think that by end of uh, uh, 23, even the most conservative uh, uh, pundits um, like Capital One would say that you know uh, global spare capacity gets challenged uh, at that point, barring you know barring global recession. Right? That's an I mean look that's a that's a concern of mine. That's a, a there is a black swan risk of something bad happening, right? Especially with you know, the, the, the strength of the U.S. dollar is something I'm watching a lot. With that, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Michael. This was fantastic. It was great hearing your stories from, you know, back in the day at Goldman Sachs and, you know, through- No, thank you for asking. It's fun. It's really fun to reminisce about that. And, you know, I mean, I, if I have a parting word of advice to you, is that, you know, you never know where your career is going to lead you. And uh, yeah. just, just roll with it, baby. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.